because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm your host, Alex Epstein. Last week, Don Watkins and Stefan Henna took over the show. This week, I am back with both of them. Hey, Don. Hey, Alex. And Stefan. Hey, Alex. So I looked at the stories you guys have prepared for this week, and uh, they're really interesting ones. So let's get started. Don, what's your first story? Sure. So uh, on July 8th, President Trump gave an interesting speech on his environmental policy or his approach to environmental issues. And I, I thought it was very interesting. In part, he did something that we do and advocate doing, but almost nobody else ever does, which is not talking about environmental issues in isolation, but as a larger project of, I mean, as he puts it, a goal of achieving the highest quality of life to all Americans, which he lays out includes economic prosperity, jobs, energy abundance, and a healthy environment. And I think you saw at least an attempt to do what we've talked about in this podcast is arguing to 100 and then arguing opponents down to negative 100. And I'll just quickly give a few quotes that give some sense of this. So when he's laying out his administration's goals and records, he says that I have given, uh, and he's talking about his cabinet secretary's clear direction to focus on addressing environmental challenges so we can provide the highest quality of life to all Americans. He goes on to talk about how we have the cleanest air and water um, in American history, which I'll come back to. Uh, but in addition to clean air and water, he says that means being good stewards for our public lands, prioritizing cleanup of polluted lands that threaten our most vulnerable citizens and threaten them very dearly, implement and implementing pro-growth policies to unlock innovation and new technologies which will improve American life and America's environment. And he goes on to talk about how a strong economy is vital to maintaining a healthy environment. When we innovate, produce, and grow, we're able to unleash technologies and processes that make the environment better while reshoring. And so importantly, you look at, uh, this is Trump kind of stumbling, not me. Uh, you look at reshoring production all the way, taking it away from foreign polluters and back to American soil. So in effect, he's saying that the more productive we are, we're able to produce here where we have a really good environment quality record and and policies versus overshores where uh, the quality and laws are not that good. And then he goes into depth on his, on, uh, his opponents. And he talks about how the previous administration waged a relentless war on American energy. And he talks about some of the negative consequences of that, including that quote, these radical plans would not make the world cleaner. They would just make and put Americans out of work and they put them out of work rapidly. And, uh, he goes on to talk about the green new deal and its enormous costs and how it will, uh, kill jobs, it will, quote, crush the dreams of the poorest Americans and disproportionately harm minority communities, and basically says that he will oppose it in the name of American sovereignty, American prosperity, and American jobs. And um, it's definitely not perfect for a number of reasons. In part, I think that it embraces like anti-impact as a goal in certain areas. So he talks about wanting the cleanest air, crystal clean water, um, and in the climate, it's conceding that the goal is lowering CO2, where he's championing our nation's energy-related carbon emissions have declined more than any other country on Earth. 
Um, so I think there's ways in which it's embracing the wrong goal, but I thought it was just very interesting. The, I think the reframing is on the right track and it's certainly something that I would like to see more of from people who are interested in human flourishing and energy progress. I mean, one thing with the point about energy, the uh, U.S. and environment. So there's, there's, I think, two different levels of recognizing the relationship between industry and environment. So one level is that if you have industry and you're productive and you're wealthy, then you can afford to spend money on environmental issues, particularly things like pollution control. And there's some truth to that. But the more fundamental point is that the core nature of industry is that it, it takes the natural environment and makes in, it makes it into a much better human environment. It takes a planet that's naturally very dangerous and makes it unnaturally safe. And it takes a planet that's naturally deficient and it makes it unnaturally abundant. And I would love to see a politician who said something along those lines, because then you really get at the other side is regressive. Like they want to regress to a primitive planet, you know, versus the the more advanced industrialized planet that we have today. Stefan, what's your first story? So this is a report by Bloomberg New Energy Finance, and they found that green investments have fallen since 2018. So they put the number for the first six months of 2019 at $117.6 billion in investment in solar, wind, and other clean energy sources. Uh, not not uh, defined very well, but um, so and that is a fourteen percent decline from the same period uh, in two thousand eighteen, and the lowest six months figure since two thousand and thirteen. Uh, and in particular, they found that China saw investments in these uh, green energy sources by thirty nine percent, but also the U.S. and Europe declined by six and four percent respectively. Um, so I found this quite interesting. Um, so in China, in particular, they changed uh, solar subsidies and made some other modifications to electric vehicles and other things. And what this shows to me is one: these investments were very government policy driven in the first place, and two, they are supposed to increase very rapidly, potentially exponentially, to catch up with fossil fuel. Uh, energy in the in the near future but this is apparently not happening so this could change over time because as i said it's policy driven but we can see here that this is not it's not like green energy is a big market winner this is very much dependent on uh, government policies and in the previous power hour episode we talked about how the uh, u.s uh, production tax credit for wind power had some similar effect uh, in 2012 2013 and might do this again this year, because when these uh, financial incentives are phased out, then you see a rush to no new capacity in these renewable power sources uh, until December of the, the year where they are, which is the last year before they get phased out. And then in the next year, there's a total collapse in that. And uh, I think something similar happened here. So the, the favorable uh, regulatory framework and, and financial incentives broke away and renewables are collapsing in investment. And this is this doesn't bode well for those people who predicted that, yeah, this is a 10x uh, exponential growth uh, field where wind and solar 
due to their economic properties, will just take over the world. Uh, that, that that doesn't indicate that at all. So what is there some answer to this by the wind and solar uh, evangelists? I mean, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about Peter Diamandis' predictions about, I think it was in that case, he was focused on battery cars, but he says a lot of things about exp, you know exponential growth of solar. I'm, I'm curious what the response is, because if you're, if you're claiming, I've mentioned before that it's the easiest thing in the world to claim exponential growth when a non-existent or tiny industry gets a little bit bigger, but it's almost never the case that they keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And uh, particularly when you have something like subsidies driving it, but their idea is, okay, maybe subsidies drove it now, but now it's, now it's like silicon microprocessors and they're just, you know, they're doubling in efficiency um, year after year after year, every you know, every eighteen months or every two years or whatever it is with Moore's law. So what what do they have to say about this? And I might even wonder what what does Bloomberg New Energy Finance have to say about this because they seem to be advocates of this exponential view. Yeah, so this is fairly new, so I haven't seen a lot of responses yet. But um, so one thing is, of course, yeah, this is a bad course in policy change for for climate policies, um, and then it's. They quoted some people being hopeful about, you know, a recovery in the second half of the year. And as I said, this could be true because it's policy driven. If there's a change in policy, you know, you could see uh, additional investments uh, soon or maybe next year. But it's I haven't seen a comprehensive explanation of this uh, sort of collapse. Well, I mean, one thing to note is that there are many, even if certain policies are taken away, there are many, many policy incentives yeah. for these things in the first place, including just the way the whole grid operates. And there are all kinds of there are all kinds of ways in which the the unre- these unreliable inputs aren't forced to pay for their unreliability and they're given preference. Uh, like you have to buy their electricity, even though you wouldn't uh, buy it if you didn't have to. And there's just all these, all these things going on. So even with the deck stacked that way, it's like if, if, if they need eight, it's like they need all eight. If you just imagine there were eight subsidies or mandates and they need, they need all eight. It's not even enough to have five or six. And the, this is also, this is still at the level in most places where these they're serving as marginal or supplemental forms of power. This is not at all the case that that everyone's claiming, which is that they can produce the 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 baseload power. So they're having and by the nature of it with all the batteries that that would we've talked about how these schemes with batteries are just complete fantasies and and impossible with the current technology, but they have to admit that those would at least make it a lot more expensive. So if they're talking about it's one thing to to not be able to do it profitably when you have coal and gas and nuclear on the network and you can you can parasite off their reliability and they can absorb your unreliability. But if you're talking about, oh, we're going to replace everything with these things and they can't even handle, they can, the unreliables can't even handle being subsidized for supplemental energy, let alone unsubsidized for fundamental energy. Don, what's your next story? Bill Gates recently gave an interview to Axios on energy issues and one of the points he was making is he was complaining about Greens who are advocating addressing climate change, but only with 
solar and wind or with renewables broadly, but chiefly solar and wind. And his, his view is that that was just as bad as those that who were quote blocking action and his view that that cannot actually solve the problem in this, uh, in his words, you know, they're saying, let's not make any trade-offs that would actually solve the problem. And just as one major example that Gates has in mind is he has recognized the need for nuclear power and seeing new nuclear power getting adopted when in fact, and again, this is largely because of green opposition. I think we've actually seen green or I'm sorry, nuclear energy um, being reduced around the globe in places like Germany. And Gates also has investments in a company called Terra Power, which is trying to build so I'm, so I'm sorry, TerraPower is what's trying to uh, build an advanced nuclear reactor, but he's also investing in a company called Carbon Engineering, which makes technology that would capture carbon dioxide emissions from directly from the sky. And according to Axios, critics have objected to the idea that because they say that investing in technologies that could capture carbon would lessen the urgency of cutting emissions because it would create a way to take those emissions out of the atmosphere later. And I just loved Bill Gates's response to that. He said, maybe to encourage people to stop eating too much, we should stop doing heart surgery because it's really letting people develop heart problems. And you know, our very first segment when we revived Power Hour was Bill Gates is a better energy thinker than Elon Musk. And part of what I think makes him good as an energy thinker is that he's actually interested in solving what he sees as a problem. Like he he thinks that rising CO2 is a real problem for humanity and he wants to know what will actually solve it, not what is ideologically appealing to him. And I think what you're seeing here and what he's sensing is that the Greens don't actually want to solve the problem of climate change. They want to solve the, quote, problem of a high energy civilization. Yeah. Gates is, I mean, he's definitely a breath of fresh air on these kinds of, of issues. I've been thinking a lot about the nuclear issue lately from the following perspective, because if we compare, let's, if we talk, if we compare the, what I would call the anti-human environmental movement that's obsessed with renewables and anti-nuclear. Like if you compare them with the people who say, I'm concerned about CO, rising CO2 levels and I'm for nuclear, you know, people like Steven Pinker the, and, and certainly Bill Gates, obviously the latter group is, the, the, the pro-nuclear group is infinitely superior. But it's it's important how far away we are from having anything like an all nuclear world because i mean as as gates is is bemoaning there's shutting down of existing nuclear plants but nuclear is just it's a tiny you know it's a it's far less than 10% of the world's energy practice probably around 5% now and it's if you just think about and we're talking about a world that will hopefully have growing energy demand assuming that we are free and that we don't have just some incredible global uh, collapse, but it's just the the. I'll say more about this in a future episode. But just the amount of time and resources and ingenuity that have gone into our existing uh, energy system are just unfathomable. 
and the like trying to change it to something else is is something that I mean, just just you can say schematically, yeah, I can imagine nuclear could do stuff in a lot of different ways. Particularly, it can do electricity, and then we can expand electricity in all these different ways. But we're just we're seeing with these different these things take uh, take so long. I mean, you're not even at the level where you have like a clear technology that's really commercialized that you can deploy and all these things. So. If if somebody is really concerned at, at this point, my my view is more and more that if you're concerned about rising CO2 levels, I mean, one thing is you just have to, you really have to focus on what I'd call climate mastery on just different ways of handling the situations using uh, a high, you know, using the different technologies at our disposal. And you should really be interested in capturing CO2 because it's in some way that's plausible that you could do that. And if you could do that, that would be just infinitely easier than somehow, you know, building a whole new energy system, particularly because the thing you need to build a whole new energy system is probably above all is oil. And that's part of the existing energy system and that emits CO2. So I just, the the more I sort of study the scale of the existing system and the state of the alternatives, the more I just think there's no way these emissions are getting lowered uh, significantly unless I think what's much more likely is that certain countries will really act suicidally. And I think our country is, is potentially one of them. And, but in terms of just like if 20 years from now, just, just actually the idea that 20 years from now, yeah, we're going to have dramatically lower emissions just seems so dubious and, you know, unless you could really capture them. Economically, it's a good thing because we'll be a lot more prosperous. And now imagine that people have talked about, well, we've had general prosperity in the last X number of years. I mean, imagine a global recession and then what happens to these green energy projects. Stefan, what's your next story? Uh, So the Competitive Enterprise Institute has uh, just last week formally requested that uh, NASA corrects its website in the climate section under the Information Quality Act. So NASA on its website is uh, claiming that there's an overwhelming scientific consensus that humans are responsible for uh, the global warming of the last century. So I'll just give a quote directly from the website. 97% of climate scientists agree that climate warming trends over the past century are extremely likely due to human activities. And most of the leading scientific organizations worldwide have issued issue public statements endorsing this position. And the Competitive Enterprise Institute argues that the evidence that NASA gives on its website doesn't actually support that claim. And they, you know, go uh, at length through the various studies and the, uh, uh, um, yeah, the the studies that NASA cites in support of that statement. Um, and so there are a couple of problems with that statement. One is immediately on NASA's website itself because it formulates a consensus, the alleged consensus, uh, differently on a, on a different website there. So I, the next quote is, multiple studies published in peer-reviewed scientific journals show that 97% or more of actively publishing climate scientists agree climate warming trends over the past century are extremely likely due to human activities. So immediately you see a different formulation. Now it's not climate scientists as a group. It's, yeah, studies published in peer-reviewed uh, scientific journals have shown, 
which is, is not the same as actual scientists are of this opinion. And then it's um, of actively publishing climate scientists. And this is related to uh, some of the studies they cite. And th this is typical. One is Cook et al. 2013, which uh, Alex has a uh, uh, um, Forbes article on dissecting this specifically. And uh, this Forbes article is actually uh, referenced in uh, uh, the petition by the Competitive Enterprise Institute, interestingly. Um, so they, they have varying um, formulations of what the consensus actually is. And uh, the uh, request by Competitive Enterprise Institute actually go through the many flaws that are in these studies. So there are, there are a bunch of studies from Oreskes and Cook et al. and Underegg and so on. So these are the typical four or five studies and they all have fatal flaws in them from, you know, collecting the sample, who is actually of what opinion, how many papers are looked at, in what way. And there are very, very difficult logical flaws in, in these. Um, I don't want to go too deep into that because it would take a long time. But there's just, so Cook et al., for example, just simply found that, yeah, there are a lot of papers. If we put uh, a search term into a database, there are a lot of papers that actually say, um, oh yeah, humans have something to do with climate change, which is a category almost everyone would get into. Right? Every critic of the IPCC would probably fit into. And uh, so then I also found a, found a problem with uh, the different uh, interpretations of the organizations that uh, NASA actually um, brings on its website. So there are organizations that say, oh, over the last 50 years or the second half of the 20th century, which is different than the 100, uh, past 100 years that NASA claimed on its front page, and, uh, you know, to various degrees, and not necessarily the dominant uh, impacting factor from anthropogenic sources, and so on. So they, one of the major flaws in this consensus business, even if it would mean anything, and in science, of course, consensus means nothing, but even if it would mean anything, if a significant amount of experts would all agree on something, at least they would have to have some consensus formulation that is coherent. Like what amount of uh, agreement is there on a specific sentence or formulation? And how do we know what the evidence they cite and so on and so forth. And none of the paper cited by NASA does any of that. They are, they are fatally flawed in not showing anything like that. So, I think the Competitive Enterprise Institute is right in, in uh, pointing that out and bringing attention to this. I don't think it's, I'm not sure whether that's the actual goal, but uh, I, I'm not sure whether criticizing NASA is all that useful because there are obviously work, people working at NASA that have a vested interest in this consensus narrative. Uh, this bloated bureaucracy at NASA is, is not going to change because of a court win or an administrative win on this formulation on the website and so on. But it's it's very important that some light is shed on this. Yeah, I, I, maybe the point that resonates with me most is just that, that there's that the formulations are so sloppy as evidenced by them being yeah. different in all of these different ways. And you'd expect a scientific organization would try to be very precise. And it, sometimes it would have different formulations in the sense of elaborating on something, but not having you know, last 50 years, since this year, last hundred years, just, it just, it, it, it has this feel of, we're just trying to push, we're just trying to say a lot of scientists agree with something in this direction and therefore we need to do something. 
that 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 comes across. Don, what's your next story? Well, I, I guess it's a topic I never expected us to cover on Power Hour, but this has to do with pornography, or rather, it has to do with a study that's come out by a French think tank called the Shift Project, where they point out or claim that our transmission and viewing of online videos it generates 300 million tons of carbon dioxide a year or 1% of global emissions. And that's made up mainly of on-demand video services like Netflix, which is a third, and pornography, which generates another third. And so the news reports have pointed out that this means that uh, pornographic videos generate as much CO2 as entire countries, including Belgium, Nigeria, and Bangladesh. And the authors of the study go on to say that we need to limit emissions from online videos by doing things like preventing them from doing autoplay and by not transmitting videos in high definition when it's unnecessary. And the report calls for regulation in this direction. That's and, my, my, fa- my favorite is, is, is whether high definition is necessary. Yeah. I want to know, I want to know how they're making that, uh, how they're making that calculation. Um, and well, but I think that's going to be relevant to the bigger, the, the, the bigger problem I have with this is that there's all these decisions about what kind of speech and what formats of speech, which is effectively what you're talking about. If you're talking about videos, um, are necessary, are good, or should even be allowed. And so, um, one thing that I think this illustrates is we're often taught to think about issues like this in terms of externalities and you know both people in the green movement people in the free market movement and the conservative world they all will think in terms of externalities and um the 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 idea is that we're having impacts that we ourselves are not internalizing on other people and and when those are negatives then well maybe the government needs to step in and do something about it but every use of our freedom particularly any use of energy has so-called negative externalities. And so here we're being told that effectively our consumption of videos has these negative externalities of CO2 emissions, and therefore the government needs to regulate it. And so, you know, now it could be focused on the kind of process part of it, like how high resolution is it and does it have autoplay? And I think that's bad enough since like those are actually valuable, or at least to some people can be valuable. But I regard it as a real possibility that we will start hearing about how our speech has negative externalities. And so that has to be limited itself. And so you can imagine it starting with unpopular, at least, and, you know, arguably morally dubious speech like pornography, but you can also see it applied to something like power hour, where we are engaging in a negative externality by using the you know the the energy required to transmit this podcast and the videos we put out there and heck it's worse than pornography because it's trying to encourage people not to do anything about that externality and so i think it's it's this is just one reason why like we think in terms of rights which protect your sphere of freedom even acknowledging that there's going to be positive and negative impacts on others yeah so one one aspect to think about here is that no, I mean, this is dealing with the realm of, of information and I think of rights as it's, it's defining your freedom of action and it ultimately needs to be based on 
the fact that human beings need to act in order to survive and flourish. And a lot of what we need to do is we need to be able to produce value, which is why it's so detrimental to have the idea that, oh, there can be no like no emissions of any kind. If there are any emissions of any kind, then you're not allowed to produce because if you're not allowed to produce, then you're really not allowed to live. But this is the realm of information. They're basically saying, hey, you are not allowed, like the creation and consumption of information has physical different kinds of emissions. And that's absolutely true because it's it's made possible by these physical digital networks. And, but they're, they're, what they're trying to do is is take that idea well the idea well you're not allowed to emit anything you have no right to emit you shouldn't have any freedom to emit to say well therefore you shouldn't be able to use information and then what happens is the government you know what they'll try to do to be reasonable is to say okay well no you can emit some kinds of things but but not for porn or not for, or at least not in that uh you don't need to see it in that high a resolution. Like they'll, they'll try to get involved in all these these different ways. And you see this with Bitcoin. People say, well, you, know, you shouldn't be mining all this Bitcoin. And you really have to decide, you know, do we have a right to pursue, you know, to create and consume information? Yes, we do have a right to do that. And then part of that is we need to be free to choose what is the best uh, for us. And so whatever the government is doing, it can't be involved in, in saying, oh, information like you're not allowed to pursue information and then it definitely can't be involved in oh this is this type is good and and this type is bad i'm also Stephen. sorry oh, I'm, go ahead. I'm also slightly confused by this because some years ago bill mckibben told me that instead of going on vacation in a physical manner i should go through the internet and explore the world via video so you know this this seems to contradict all that all that you know um advance this plot a little bit by saying, oh, now that you're on video, you shouldn't use video either. Yeah. It's like, yeah, it gets you, you like quarantines you in your room and then it's, oh no, you're not even allowed to do anything stop in your room. Yeah. 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 And well, really you just need to quarantine everyone in the room. Then there'll be nothing to put on the internet except porn in people's rooms, which will also not be allowed. Uh, Stefan, what's your next story? There's some sign that there will be a new nuclear capacity in Europe, but it will take some time, apparently. So two countries neighboring Germany, namely Poland and the Czech Republic, uh, plan on uh, creating some nuclear capacity in the 2030s, probably. So um, as we featured in a previous power, Germany plans to phase out all of its uh, remaining nuclear capacity by the end of 2022, and then all of its coal uh, capacity is somewhere in the late 2030s. And Poland uh, in May announced that uh, they will have their first nuclear reactor probably operational by 2033. And overall, they plan on maybe six reactors in the online in the 2040s with about six to nine gigawatts of generation capacity. And right now, Poland uh, relies heavily on coal uh, for its electricity generation. And I uh, think this is not coincidental with the German plans because uh, Germany might want to pay some premium on reliable energy then in the 2030 to 2040 realm. And the Czech Republic already has some nuclear capacity right now, but they plan on replacing some aging reactors um, around 2035 and then also add some capacity later on. Um, 
And one of the goals, uh, at least in the case of the Czech Republic, is to decrease CO2 emissions overall uh, by increasing the uh, uh, nuclear share of uh, generation capacity and also a reliable energy grid. I think they fear somewhat that the German energy transition experiment will actually harm their grid uh, because all of the Central European grids are sort of connected and integrated. So we get, uh, you know, sometimes we import or export from France and, and uh, you know, Switzerland and so on. So there's something going on there that makes uh, neighboring countries uneasy about Germany's uh, trajectory here. And one of the things that you can immediately see here is the current state of European nuclear power, which is similar to the uh, American state of nuclear power, which is high initial cost, which is why governments get involved in that with loan guarantees and subsidies, and then long lead times to actually construct the reactors. And this is something where you would think, yeah, this needs to be fixed. If nuclear power is really part of you know, a replacement strategy for fossil fuels in the mid to long term, at a minimum, we need to make it easier to create nuclear capacity. Um, you know, even if we continue to use the same uh, nuclear technology, the light water reactors that we are currently using, then we need to speed up construction similar to what we did in the 1960s and 70s. And so there must, there must be uh, improvement to the regulatory framework. So these two countries will do like a marginal in, increase of nuclear capacity. Um, I don't think it will actually be on net then again in the totality of Europe, considering that Germany and probably even France will plan on reducing their capacity. So this is, this is sort of the sorry state of nuclear technology right now. One, because of the government involvement, and two, because the technology hasn't advanced, also because of the government involvement, in my view, but that's a, that's a topic for a different power. So th this point about the European grid being integrated, I think is something that should probably be stressed more, because they go often when people, they'll, people often hear about a grid in a different country, and then they'll just think about ours. And then they'll, they'll just think, oh, well, Germany does this, or certainly someplace like Denmark, a tiny place, and they'll think, oh, well, then we could just do that here. But I mean, does it even make any sense to think in terms of the, the grid of Denmark? I mean, is that like thinking about the grid of Rhode Island uh, in the sense that all these things? So how do you how do you think about the European grid? And then what do we know about the actual percentages of different things on that grid? Well, so there's, in a sense, each country like each grid region in North America has sort of its own domestic fleet and infrastructure. But there are many interconnectors between the different grid regions. For example, inside Germany, there are different grid regions, but then also to the neighboring countries. And so there's a lot of import and export going on within the you know, core region of the European Union and, and the European continent. And yeah, it... So in the case of Denmark, for example, it makes no sense to look at Denmark in isolation because Denmark on its own would probably not be able to run its own power grid. It has massive, like 20, 30 plus percent of imports and exports every year of electric uh, power. And it heavily relies on wind in domestic generation, but it would totally not be able to uh, keep its grid stable without outside help of you know storage and uh, supply of reliable energy and 
yeah, so it's it's difficult to assess these because the outside trade is often handled differently in these um, sort of statistical uh, assessments of, of power generation. And often we hear, oh yeah, Germany added this and that much capacity, but you have to look at this in the larger context, of course, like what is what are the surrounding grid areas uh, having it as pools of generation capacity and so on. So it's, it doesn't doesn't really make sense to look at it in isolation, but the national statistic work like this. So much of the information that is presented in news articles and so on is focused on like national borders, which doesn't make sense in the in the sense of the European grid. Just one little anecdote. A couple of months ago, I noticed that some of my, my kitchen clocks uh, were off by a couple of minutes actually. And so I looked, up on the internet and turned out that something like a remote problem in the southeastern region of Europe, something like near the Balkans, I think, was uh, setting off the grid frequency significantly, not by a huge amount, but consistently. So there was a shortfall in, in generation capacity there. And then the, some of the kitchen clocks actually, uh, you know, measure time by their grid frequency of 50 hertz. And this this was interesting that uh, you could be affected by something that remote. Like it's not even a, in a neighboring country. It's like two countries further down the line in the hierarchy of the grid. Interesting. Let's do one more story. Don, what's your last story for us? A company called Vineyard Wind is building an 84-tower uh, offshore wind farm just south of Martha's Vineyard or at least they want to, but they've run into a problem, which is that the Edgartown Conservation Commission just denied them a permit for cables that would pass through, and I hope I'm getting the pronunciation right, Muscaget Channel. And the wind proposal is to bury these 400 megawatt export cables about a mile off of Chappaquiddick. And the commission said that, no, you can't do that because it's going to disturb marine habitats. And so this is a quote from the commission. After a lengthy hearing and review process, the commission voted to deny the application under the Massachusetts Wetlands Protection Act. The commission found that the applicant, Vineyard Wind, did not submit sufficient information to protect against long-term and short-term adverse effects on the resource area, land under the ocean. The area is critical for the protection of marine fisheries, land containing shellfish, storm damage prevention, flood control, and protection of wildlife habitat. And the what is so uh, surprising, I guess, is like this is the same sort of thing that happens every single day to anybody who wants to engage in any fossil fuel project or any development project as such. And so, I mean, one implication here is I don't think that this is going to be unique. I mean, the idea that we're going to just create a wind and solar economy like part of that is based on a delusion that it will be affordable to use unreliable fuels, but it's also based on the delusion that these projects are green, but they have these massive, massive impacts. And so if you really did get an attempt to, to scale them, um, they're going to run into the same environmental policies that fossil fuels do. And I say this not as like a gotcha, though, I mean, it's, you know, there, there is that element to it, but I mean, I actually find this scary because it illustrates that these, you know, greed policies are not just anti-fossil fuels, but I mean, they're 
anti-development, including anti-any energy. And to the extent that per- would prevent us from scaling up any reliable fuel source, uh, as you, you know, we've spoken of, it, they already are in a different way with nuclear, it puts us in a very vulnerable position. And I think that should be something that's quite worrisome. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think just in the context of understanding, and I, I think of it as our existing energy system is really an amazing uh, achievement. And it's hard to even come up with analogies because I don't know of anything else that's really on that scale. But if if you were to just think of something like our, you know, our our even our like our smartphone production system, like you think of the smartphone production system, which of course totally depends on the energy system that we have. But if you just sort of took that in isolation and you thought, okay, well, you get okay, this is producing so many smartphones for so many people with high degree of reliability. Like, how did this come about? Well, it it came about because because in general, people in the world are free to create new values. And a lot of really smart people, whether they're entrepreneurs or inventors or uh, engineers and logistics people, they figured out in all of these different ways, you know, people in those fields figured out all these different uh, processes for making smartphones, including just what materials they would use and where the factories would be built, just all these things that are just trying to make every decision so that they're made as efficiently as possible so as many people as possible can afford them. And there's no, you you think 20 years back and you think, oh, well, let's just take the smartest people in the world and plan the smartphone system. Well, they didn't even have a conception of that. But if they were to plan, you know, global cell phone manufacturing 20 years ago, you know, imagine where they would have gotten and then you think, and then imagine it was it was the particular, it wasn't the smartest people, it was the people who would be demanding the power. So it was like the Ocasio-Cortez types. And then imagine it wasn't just that, but they were insisting on doing it with technologies that had never worked at all. Like they said, we're going to make all the phones out of wood because that's renewable. And it's like, no, we'll do it somehow. And there's a guy from Stanford who claims that you can make all the phones out of wood. No, he can't even run a 7-Eleven. But yeah, of course he can tell you how to, you just think now that we've seen the achievement, you think, no, the only, of course, the only way this could come about is by free people figuring out the most efficient ways to produce, um, you know, cell phones on the scale of billions. And that's what's happened with energy is that in general, what's happened is people have been free to figure out the best ways to produce energy for the different power needs of, of billions of people. And all the choices they've made have been from the perspective of what's the most efficient way to do every little aspect of this process such that you can afford to drive a car at the lowest possible price or fly at the lowest possible price. And then you just think, oh, somebody, somebody is going to come along and say, no, I know better than the millions of specialists in this, uh, in this field. And then also I'm going to introduce a totally new thing that doesn't work at all, that none of those millions of specialists have made work at all in the context of making them actually valuable to uh, consumers on any kind of, of of scale, so that's that's the whole. Just the energy system that we have is this amazing achievement of free people and human ingenuity, you know, pursuing the best technologies. And the idea of you can that that dictators using like ideologically chosen technologies that don't work 
that that's going to not be a disaster. But then on top of that, you have the, the same ideology that makes them choose these inferior technologies is going to make them oppose any kind of, of uh, development. So it's just the, the worst. It's just, and, and in practice, what it's going to mean is just that these things aren't going to happen on the scale that they're discussed. But I think individual places are particularly likely to make bad decisions on this kind of thing. And in practice, just they, they just, just one more thing on this, which is you see these estimates of, oh, this is going to cost this amount of money. I mean, it's, it's really hard to even estimate what I use 7-Eleven is like what a 7-Eleven will cost to build, but that's pretty cookie cutter. Maybe the franchises are somewhat decent, but you just think any kind of new construction project, and now you're going to figure, you're going to know what these projects that have never really worked on a large scale, what they're going to cost. And then how do you factor in all the environmental opposition? So when, when Wood McKenzie, we were talking about them a couple of weeks ago, when they're making their four and a half trillion or whatever statistic, were they factoring in this opposition? And can they figure out what the city council of, you know, nowheresville, wherever, is going to do no, so it's 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 just so dangerous. I mean, it's just infinitely dangerous to be at the mercy of people who are who are promising to dictate uh, the economy instead of to be able to choose people to deal with on a on a free economy. All right, with that in mind, let's wrap up for the day. Thanks, Don and Stefan for joining me. Uh, Some of us at least will be back next week. Not sure if I'll be here, but I'm going to make it at least every two weeks. That's my my, uh, current resolution, but we'll we'll try to do the episode one way or another uh, every week. If you have any questions, comments, love mail, or hate mail, you can uh, go through Don, don at industrialprogress.net. Also, if you are interested in a speaker, you can email don at industrialprogress.net subject speaking. And if you're interested in consulting on messaging for your organization, you can email Don subject consulting. All right. Next week, some of us will be back with more great topics. Until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.